I'm Niall Capello, and this is Dear Diane, a Vespucci story, reported by me and narrated by Maggie Robinson Katz. I remember we were out playing and we were pretending that, um, you know, we'd been transported through time and space and all of a sudden we were on this other planet and it started snowing and the night was coming and we didn't know the area and, you know, he just kind of took over and he's like, okay, we're going to build an igloo and, (laughs) you know, he was just, um, he was so much fun. I don't know if this sounds goofy, but you know those little fuzz balls? They made them for like a foot bath, a foot fuzzy. And I had just this big plastic bucket thing. And I remember us playing with them, putting our feet in it and putting one in there. And he just loved that. He just thought that was the funnest thing. And one of my favorite ones is, I remember he used to love to read Garfield cartoons. He just loved them. We used to love to go to bookstores and it was fun. You know, it's like you could pick out two books today or whatever. And he really liked that. I mean, I I keep those memories very much alive and um, I work very hard to do that. In 1997, Julie Ray was a 28-year-old single mother living in Lawrenceville, Illinois with her 10-year-old son, Joel. I was a doctoral student getting going on my dissertation and I had a good outlook for Joel and I. There was anticipation on my part that I would be in higher academia and that would open doors for him. He was just very, very gifted and very genuine and very loving. But in the early hours of October 13th, 1997, Joel was brutally murdered in their home. His mother, Julie, can't talk about that day. That is when I fall into the abyss and I I can't handle that, I know. <laughs> My name is Ron Safer and I'm a lawyer. Julie awoke at about 4.30 in the morning to a sound. And you know, if you've woken from a sound sleep and you hear something and she got up and she looked across to Joel's bed in the next room across the hall and she couldn't see him on the bed. And so she isn't understanding what's going on, but she starts walking towards his bedroom to see where he is and bam, she bangs into somebody who had been crouching in the hallway there. He's in black, he's got a hood, She can't figure out what's going on. She just grabs onto his legs and uh, he drags her along the rug. He breaks free and goes out into the garage. And then there's another glass back door. He can't get that glass back door opened and she grabs him again around the waist and slides down to his knees to try and tackle him because she is thinking, okay, he must be working with somebody else because he doesn't have Joel. Joel's not in his bed. Somebody else must have Joel. But if I hold him, I can get help. That's as clearly as she's thinking anyway. Uh, He breaks the glass in the back garage door. She is dragged across that glass. She gets out in the backyard. She's still 
clutching to his legs, won't let go. He finally turns around, grabs her head, smashes it down into the ground, and then walks off. She comes to, she runs directly to a neighbor's house. She says, Joel's gone, call the police. Julie, of course, is hysterical. The police show up very, very quickly. Joel has been pushed off the bed. So his body is on the ground between the wall and the bed. That's why Julie couldn't see him. And he feels a faint pulse. So he calls for the paramedics. The paramedics come in and they feel that his body is warm. So it's just happened, but you know, they cannot revive him. He, he, he's been stabbed 15, 16 times and he, you know, he dies. Julie, black eye and cuts from broken glass tells the police what happened. They were like, you know, we want to talk to her and we're going to talk to her alone. And I know there was a minister there who said she should not be in there by herself. And I was just giving them everything I could think of, every random thought that was going through my head. And um, they weren't really listening to me. I could tell that. I knew that. They were just writing stuff down, but it wasn't, they weren't listening to me. They weren't hearing what I was saying. And I remember begging them to listen to me and feeling like I was just completely being ignored. And that's the main feeling I had from day one. Soon, Julie would realize why the police didn't seem to be listening. On October 13, 2000, Julie was charged with the first-degree murder of her son, Joel. I didn't understand that. I didn't get it. I had no clue that they would think I did this. There is no question in my mind that they immediately, they, the police, immediately assumed it was Julie. Why they did that? Probably for the same reason that the initial jury questioned it. Like, who does this? Who breaks into a house, kills a kid, doesn't kill the adult, doesn't steal anything, doesn't bring a murder weapon, uses a murder weapon from the house? Nobody does that. Who else is there? Julie. So they assumed from the very first moment that it was her. How do we know that? We know that because they didn't fingerprint the house. They didn't fingerprint the house because they knew that Julie's fingerprints would be all over the house. They didn't fingerprint the area around the knife block from which the knife was taken to stab Joel. They did not save the fibers on the blanket over Joel. Indeed, there's a picture of the state police officers holding the blanket up so that it can be photographed. Meanwhile, of course, all of the fibers are lost. There's a hair that is in Joel's hand that is not Julie's that they don't test. I mean, They don't test any of that. They don't fingerprint. They don't look for that evidence because they believe, they assume from the first moment it's Julie. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once police formed a theory about what happened, the case was built around proving it. So 
first they had to try to create a motive. And they did that through Julie's ex-husband, who was an angry man. It was not an amicable divorce. He's angry that his son is killed. He's angry at the world. He's angry at Julie. And he says some things that just are demonstrably not true. For example, that she never wanted the baby and that she wanted or thought about an abortion, which is completely absurd because as her medical records show, she had a difficult pregnancy. She had to be on bed rest for months. And she did that because she desperately wanted a child. So they had to create a motive. They bent evidence. And then they had this blood spatter expert, Englert, who came into the court. He threw around fake blood, doing demonstrations of blood spatter. He took over the courtroom. And then he testified in what is the most horrific expert testimony that I've seen in my career, that the blood spatter evidence proved that Julie was guilty. And the jury believed him. You are taught, I was taught, follow the evidence. Never start with a person and then fit the evidence to that person. And that's exactly what you see in every wrongful conviction case. When you get a prosecutor who, in my view, doesn't care about whether the person he's prosecuting is innocent or guilty, but is very talented as a trial lawyer, when you get an expert who is, in my view, completely unethical, immoral, and wrong, and you get an overwhelmed defense attorney who didn't put Julie on the stand, you get an innocent woman convicted. When cops operate this way, they get the wrong people a lot. And they recreate statistics that are inaccurate to begin with. So they have an erroneous statistic that they created and now they reinforce it. Well, who was gonna be home with Joel that night? It was like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. I was gonna be with him, where else would I be? So of course I'm the easiest person to go for. On March 4th, 2002, Julie was convicted of her son's murder. She was sentenced to 65 years in prison. First, I wasn't allowed to be in shock. I mean, that's what happens first. You know, you're just completely in shock. And then you're not allowed to grieve. And that went on for years. I mean, I don't think I really got to grieve for at least 10 years because of the trauma. As Julie began her 65-year prison sentence, the outside world moved on. But life for Julie would never be the same. I mean, I, I knew that someday, you know, I believed, I hoped, I prayed that the truth would come out. My name is Diane Fanning. I'm a crime writer. I write true crime and mystery novels. Diane was a mother of two who'd recently moved to Texas with her husband. At the time, she was writing her first book about a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells. 
I had some manuscripts I had written, but I'd never had a book published. And I had been seeking an agent and I did not get one until I sent her a chapter involving the Sells case. And after two years of work, I overnight got an agent. So I wrote to Sells and uh, told him what I was doing and told him I'd like to speak with him. And as luck would have it, he'd been in the Bear County Jail in San Antonio for nine months and had not had one single visitor. So he was eager to see someone. And so he said I could come in and talk to him. And I, and I did. And it was difficult getting to the point where he would open up because at first, really, his main focus was for me to give him money. And then his main focus was for me to talk dirty to him. And finally, we got around to serious business. And I interviewed him, oh, a little over 20 times. He considered me his friend. And for a while, I was the only one he would talk to about anything. He wouldn't talk to cops or anybody. And um, he... He used me as a go-between with lots of different people, police officers and victims, family members and stuff. And I, uh, my feelings for him were so uh, jumbled up. I mean, I, I could sit there sometimes and laugh at his jokes and then get out of there and feel sick because I had done that. And then at other times, he would try his best to make me get grossed out or appalled. I, it was all I could do not to be judgmental, and sometimes it slipped through, but I, I knew I had to guard against it or he'd stop talking to me. And I really found him to be the most evil person I'd ever encountered in my life. But on top of that, when he told me about his mother turning him over to a pedophile when he was seven years old, uh, I cried. It, it was just awful. Um, to, to think your mother would willingly turn you over to someone who would molest you like that. And, and I felt so bad for that poor little boy. That didn't excuse anything the adult did, but that little boy broke my heart. In the spring of 2002, an episode of 2020 focused on Joel's murder aired across the United States. And so I was home alone, it was like 10 at night, and I was just scanning through the channels, seeing what was on. And something caught my eye on 2020 when I went there and I just started listening to it. And really, when I first start listening, I'm going, yeah, right, yeah, right. Everybody's innocent. We all know this, you know. So, you know, her parents and her friends and her lawyers, and then finally Julie herself saying she didn't kill her son. And I was Miss Skeptic sitting there watching it, not buying it at all. And then the prosecutor came on saying things that I knew were not true. Most particularly, he said, no one comes into your home, picks up a weapon, and uses it to kill someone in the house. Now, I know 
that Sells had done that many times. And I asked him about that once, and he said, well, you know, you can set me down in any room, and I can find at least three or four items to kill someone with. He said, they're everywhere. And that really impressed me when I was watching that show. And by the time we got to the end, I was going, you know what? This woman just might not be guilty. She might be innocent. And someone like Sells just might have killed her son. So after I finished watching the show, I sat down and wrote a letter to Sells the next day. When I first read the letter I got from Sells, I assumed I had read it wrong, but my hands started shaking just the same. So I read it again, and then I started pacing. When Diane wrote to Tommy Lynn Sells about the 2020 episode, she mentioned the misinformed prosecutor as a conversation point, an attempt to find common ground. She had no idea what he would say in his response. I didn't tell him Julie's name. I didn't tell him the name of the town. I didn't tell him the dates, none of that. And he wrote back and said, was that maybe right after the girl I killed in Springfield? Was that maybe on the 13th of the month? Well, I didn't know Joel's date offhand, so I went and looked that up, and sure enough, it was on the 13th, and I double-checked the date on Stephanie Mihaney's murder, and that was, I think, on the 10th, just three days before. So at first, I wanted to know from him, who told you about this? So I wrote back to him, and he got a little bit miffed at me and said, nobody told me about this. You know, I don't have TV, which I did know. And he said... There are a lot of murders out there that I did, and there's a lot of people sitting behind bars for crimes I committed, and I don't care. I was rocked to my core. I was very close to the panic state because I felt like this was important. I didn't want to blow it. A woman's life is hanging in the balance here. So I reached out to 2020, and the producer called me back. And uh, we talked about it, and she said, you just don't have enough. I spent weeks trying to figure out, do I put this in the book or do I leave it out? I was afraid I'd be ridiculed. I'd be destroying my own career. But I also knew that I couldn't live with myself if I had information that might free an innocent woman if I kept that information to myself. That's why I decided to just go ahead and go with it and let the rocks come from whatever direction they come from. You know, I just can't do anything except write. I mean, that's what I do. I hoped that if what he was telling me was true, someone who knew more than I did would be able to take that information and make something out of it. And one of the people that saw it was Julie's mother, and she emailed me and asked me if I would talk to Julie's appeal attorney, which I said, of course. Then she emailed me again and asked me if I would talk to the investigator for the Innocence Project. And I said, sure. And uh, suddenly I was sucked up into the case. Diane Fanning, who is writing a book on a death row inmate, 
she says he has committed 50 murders across the United States, six or so of which were just like that, where he goes into a house without a murder weapon, kills a child and leaves without harming an adult. In fact, he's on death row for doing it in a trailer where the parents do not wake up after he slits one girl's throat and then molests another and stabs her, although she survives. So he writes back and says, was it in Illinois and was it two days before Stephanie Mahaney? On October 15, 1997, Tommy Lynn Sells raped and murdered a little girl uh, named Stephanie Mahaney in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, on October 13, 1997, he murdered Joel. She writes back and says, yes, how do you know? And he says, because I did it. I got my phone call that day and someone had written a book and, and it was a confession. And, you know, so as a mom, a million things go through your head. Um, there's somebody out there who knows what happened. They know if Joel, you know, was really hurt, was really scared. They know what they did to him. I fell apart emotionally. One of the guards had to come talk to me. I fell apart so bad because all the worst things run through your head, you know? And after that, you know, there was some hope that finally there's somebody that has confessed and there's hope that I'll be going back home. So it was, it was kind of a full spectrum of emotions. It was overwhelming, I would say. It was then that the police got wind of the confession and paid Sells a visit. They go down, they take an 86-page confession from him, tape-recorded. And look, he is a drug-addled serial murderer. He gets a lot wrong. He gets why he was there wrong. He gets what the outside of the house looks wrong. He gets what the subdivision looks like is wrong. But once he starts describing what happened inside the house, it's exactly as the physical evidence happens. He describes the conflict with Julie exactly as she describes it. And of course, there's no record of that. He can't get that somewhere. She's never testified to it. So their descriptions match and he's clearly telling the truth. This was a huge break in the case, but the prosecution was adamant. Julie had killed her son. And Sells' confession was false. Julie's team would soon learn that this wasn't the first lead that could connect Sells to the case. It was incredible that the police did not follow the leads that they had regarding Tommy Lynn Sells. Just incredible. A woman at the Greyhound bus terminal called the police and said, I just sold a ticket to that guy, the guy that I saw on the TV. I sold him the ticket even though he didn't have enough money to go to where he wanted to go, but he just creeped me out. And so I gave him the ticket anyway. And he matches that description and he was wearing the clothes that was described. Where was the ticket to? Winnemucca, Nevada. She had never in her career 
and she'd been doing this for 40 years, sold the bus ticket to Winnemucca, Nevada, like 2,000 people in Winnemucca. Who was arrested in Winnemucca, Nevada some months before showing that he lived there? Tommy Lynn Sells. The police never, never, to the day of trial, never followed that lead. You know, just mind-blowing. By 2006, Julie had spent six years in prison, where she was taunted and tormented by guards trying to solicit a confession. It was in 2006 that lawyer Ron Safer was introduced to her case. When I got a call from Northwestern Center on Wrongful Conviction, they said that they do work to try to get people new trials. They called around, and in Julie's case, because of the confluence of facts, that I was the person they wanted. And I said, uh, you know, I appreciate that. That's very flattering. I just agreed to take on a management position at my law firm. I just don't have the time to do it. Uh, And they said, well, let me tell you a little bit about the case. And I said, I don't want to hear about the case. I can't do it. So don't tell me about it. And they said, okay, could you handle the bond hearing? Because she got a new trial and they want to hold her on bond. And I said, okay, with the understanding that somebody else will try this case, I will go down for the bond here. I remember the first time I met Julie, I came down to Lawrenceville and I met her the night before the hearing at the jail. The first word that comes to my mind is fragile. Seemed like she was about 80 pounds, pale, frail, worried, vulnerable, wispy you know, sort of like a strong wind would have carried her away. I learned enough about the case to know that, for example, the the forensic evidence at that point indicated to me that she was innocent, or at least that I couldn't understand a theory of guilt with it, and that the serial murderer had confessed to the crime. Ron attended the bond hearing and took his place before the judge standing next to the public prosecutor in an otherwise empty courtroom. And the judge turned to the prosecutor and said, yeah, what about this Tommy Lynn Sells guy? And I'm telling you, these were the words that are almost verbatim because they're seared into my memory. The prosecutor said, oh, judge, don't worry about that. Nobody is ever going to hear about that. No jury will ever hear about it. And I said, Judge, I do not hear the representative of the people of the state of Illinois standing here before you and telling you that he intends to try this woman for her life while concealing from the jury the fact that a serial murderer has confessed to this crime that he knows that confession is corroborated, and that he has a tape recording of this 86-page confession. I don't hear the representative of the people of the state of Illinois as saying that, but if you hear him saying that, you ought to say, 
not in my courtroom. He looks at me, shakes his head, says, you know, a million dollar bond or something to that effect. And I turned to the Northwestern people and said, okay, I'm in. The retrial began in 2006, this time with Ron as Julie's defense. I did finally at least have a legal team that, you know, knew what they were doing. They actually, you know, could read and write and didn't seem to be afraid. They actually had investigators. They actually looked at the case. They actually knew the facts. And, um, you know, they weren't like, yeah, we believe you're innocent. They were like, yeah, we know you're innocent and we're going to prove that. I had no doubt of Julie's innocence. There are 10 pieces of forensic evidence that make it impossible that Julie committed this crime. Impossible. The appeals court was hearing Julie's case. And that's what really got the wheels turning in uh, the police department and the prosecutor's office. Because he ruled that the DA had to stop stonewalling and had to test the hair that was found in Joel's hand to see if anything could be learned from that DNA. And so that put the prosecutor on guard. He talked to Sells, and there were a lot of things that were exactly on the mark, but he was only interested in proving himself right. So he went through and nitpicked the tiny details that he said were faulty in Sells' story. Once someone latches onto a theory, all the information comes in is going to be put in the trash if it doesn't agree with that theory or embraced if it does. That's what humans naturally do instead of really thinking things through. And when it's a matter of being proven wrong, people put their backs up even more. And that was the state with the prosecutor was in. Uh, and along with him, the police. They did not want to admit they could even possibly be wrong. We had hard forensics that proved her innocent beyond any reasonable doubt. They had an expert giving a baseless opinion on junk science. That's all. I said, Julie, don't worry about it. 100% guarantee you will be acquitted. There is no chance that you are going to be convicted. I remember that because after the meeting, Jeff turned to me and said, what in the world are you doing? You never tell. You never say that to a client. There are no guarantees. You never know what a jury's going to do. I said, look, Jeff, there is no way we're going to prepare her for the blow of going back to prison again as an innocent person. I was not nervous coming into that trial because the evidence, you know, the forensic evidence proves her innocent. But then I sat there during opening statement and, you know, they put up 
the pictures of Joel, you know, his body, uh, and the horrific, you know, it's bloody and horrific and gory and awful. And then he's pointing at Julie. And I look over it, and he's very good. And he's twisting the evidence. And I look over at the jury, and I think, holy cow. These people don't know that she's innocent. And this is working. And they're angry. And she's the only one in this courtroom that they can vent that. I see how this, I see how this works. We were the only thing that stood between jail and this innocent person. The prosecutor had made it his mission to keep Julie behind bars. How could he not know she was innocent? Or did he really not even care? It was a difficult position for me because, you know, I didn't feel like I was an official in any capacity. I mean, I, I, I wasn't. And I was just trying to do what to me seemed like the right thing. The prosecutor stood in front of the parole board and said that I was nothing more than a housewife with a serial killer pen pal obsession. I just looked at Julie and I wanted to cry. (laughs) As a mother, knowing that what she'd been through, knowing that not only did she lose a child to brutal violence, but she was blamed for the crime. I can't think anything worse can happen to a human being. And to know that I was able to make a little bit of a difference, that I was able to, you know, serve as a catalyst to get things moving, um, made my whole life feel worthwhile. Crime writing, when you're writing the nonfiction crime stories, it's like, you're a journalist and you're trying, you don't want to get involved in it. You don't want to be part of the story. And there I was getting sucked into it. It was weird. I sure never expected that to happen. And uh, I tried to keep it at arm's length for a while, but then it just sorta, I just got so sucked into it that suddenly what happened to Julie and her vindication mattered more to me than my book sales. The weird thing to me is I feel like there was some sort of hand and fate involved in this. The way we made the decision to move out to Texas when we did, it almost feels like the purpose of that was to write this book and the purpose of writing this book was to help Julie. Jury came back. It was incredibly tense. We all stood. Uh, they announced that she was not guilty. Julie's knees buckled. I went to catch her. Missed. She fell to the floor. You know, we picked her up. Uh, you know, gave her to her family. It was just. Uh, an unbelievable feeling of relief. You know, but I will say, uh, we went outside, you know, we talked to the press for a little while, I turned to Karen Daniel, who worked with Northwestern Center on Wrongful Conviction, who was an angel sent from heaven to earth for a too brief period of time. Uh, And I turned to her and said, Karen, I will never do this again, never. 
This is the worst professional experience of my life. The pressure of defending an innocent person in a murder case is, is unbearable. She called me about six months later and asked me to do it again, and I said yes before she finished her sentence. In July 2006, nine years after her son was murdered, Julie Ray was exonerated. It doesn't bring Joel back. Yeah, it doesn't bring Joel back. But it did bring me home, which was a blessing. Julie's case is tremendously instructive about the criminal justice system. She was a good, loving, caring mother. Joel was everything in the world to her. She did nothing wrong. Nothing. Well, I think what I've learned is that it's it's like a bartering system. It's very rare that the person who does the worst crime gets the most time. They trade and bargain and people are traded. And um, it, it's just not a fair system at all, what we have. Even when they accused me of it, I thought, well, if I just keep explaining to them, they'll figure out they're wrong. I had no idea that they didn't care. I think he just doesn't understand that the repercussions of him not caring about his job, not doing his job correctly, means exactly what it meant in this case, that the guilty party went on and killed other children. That's on his head. That's on his hands. That's on his shoulders. It plays out and it's somebody's child. It's somebody's grandchild. I mean, I don't know if he has grandchildren, but, um, you know, most people are fortunate enough to. I never will get to. And that's because somebody somewhere down the line didn't care enough to do the job right. People need to understand the reality of the justice system. Prosecutors aren't infallible. Police departments aren't infallible. Judges, juries, none of us are infallible. We are human beings. And this could happen to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to anybody. We need to know about this. And we need to apply pressure where we can to have the prosecutors in our local communities to start looking at what their real mission is and start applying that mission to their everyday work because lives are at stake. In this case, Julie's life was at stake. But in addition to that, look at all the people's cells killed after he killed Joel. If he'd only been stopped, with Joel, many other lives would still be here. Many of these children would be grown up now and leading good lives. But the prosecutor and the flaws in the justice system have robbed those people of their lives and robbed their families of their love. And it is a tragedy that we need to find a way to get right. We'll never be perfect, but we can do better. I think that it's important to remember that each person is just a person and each person has a story. 
and we should never label people. When I was teaching ed psych, when I taught about labels, limiting our ability to see children, I would hold up a glass frame and put stick-it notes with labels on it and then say, you know, how well can you see their face now? You can't. You need to take the time to listen to the whole story and know the person and try not to put a stick-it note with a label on them in front of the face. It's something that happened to me. It's not who I am. So um, I continue on. I fail a lot. I have PTSD and I fail a lot, but um, I accept those failures as gifts of their own kind and just try to move on. It has altered me significantly, how I see the world, and it is my choice what I choose to see. I see more beauty now. The loss is, you know, obvious and overt, but as devastating as it has been to be without Joel, I can't stay bitter about that because I have the grace of having him in my life still and ever having had him.